Welcome to Unity Now, the podcast where we discuss unity stemming from the Unity 2020 plan with one goal in mind, bring unity to America and end the Republican-Democrat duopoly. This podcast is created, produced, hosted, recorded, edited, and publicized by a wonderful team of Unity volunteers that came together from all over the country to collaborate in a completely remote environment. To provide a brief introduction to Unity, we offer this. Unity 2020 was an idea that started when Brett Weinstein announced the plan on the Joe Rogan Experience in mid-June 2020. From there, the movement was born, and since then, tens of thousands of volunteers have signed up, organized, and begun to create a groundswell of support. The plan always introduced a fail-safe so we would not be an election spoiler. This was to end the plans for the 2020 election if it was determined there was no viable path to the White House. Sadly, this became the case. In keeping our promise, this fail-safe was executed and announced by Brett Weinstein. However, we believe unity continues to be the number one antidote for what ails the country right now, and so we are pressing on with a renewed spirit. To learn more and become a volunteer, visit articlesofunity.org and check out Brett Weinstein's YouTube page and the Articles of Unity YouTube page for the weekly campfires. Welcome to the Unity Now podcast, the podcast all about the unity movement. I'm your host today, Eric White, and with me I have Travis Reese and Craig Carroll from the Red Team. So can you guys take a second to introduce one another? Sure. Craig, you want to go alphabetical order? Alphabetical order, your turn. Sure. Uh, so uh, my name's Craig. I've been a volunteer with Unity since... Gosh, I don't know. I wasn't in the first wave, but I, I caught on fairly quickly. Um, kind of wandered around trying to figure out what to do been between writing and social media and whatnot. Uh, eventually, Travis here recruited me onto the red team, which is, uh, well, I'll let him explain more of the, the role of the red team. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I just recently moved to Florida from Hawaii. And so uh, there were some unity people all, also looking for volunteers to lead um, kind of get local chapters started. So I'm the lead of the Florida chapter currently. We have about 40 members. Um, and yeah, I, I found Unity uh, approximately through Brett Weinstein, but um, I've been paying attention to some kind of disturbing things in the, in the social realm for about two years. And last year I decided to, I, I really need to get smart on it because I didn't really understand what was causing all the problems I was seeing. So I started doing a lot of reading and listening to very smart people, which inevitably led me to Brett Weinstein who pitched Unity and here I am. Cool. All right, uh, following up with Craig, uh, my name is Travis Reese. I live in uh, Northern Virginia. Um, spent 21 years in the Marine Corps, retired in October of 2016, and then uh, have been state and defense contracting, doing a, a couple different things. My principal training, though, was in uh, strategy and policy. So uh, from there, I've sort of naturally stayed connected to that world and work uh, contemporaneously on some of our security challenges. Interestingly enough, in uh, I think you know, two summers ago, when uh, or in a bit, when uh, Eric Weinstein began the uh, Portal podcast, I had actually just completed an article for a professional journal uh, that was a bit contrary in, in terms of uh, the popular view of some of our uh, peer adversaries. And at the time, uh, Eric's Portal start had just appeared on my feed, and there I was like, well, I've never heard of this guy. I don't know what he does. Uh, but immediately I realized this was some breakthrough thinking about how to assess our world and sense-making, which, of course, then opened up the, the proliferation of, of thought about this. And then when uh, he interviewed Brett this last spring and you know, finally got him to tell a story, and I was like, okay, now I can make a little more sense of this. And then as Brett began to emerge in regular commentary with COVID and then finally evolving into this project, I was uh, – uh, an early adopter, you know, right on the Slack, right on the Discord server at that point in time. So I've been following along since, but because my skill set wasn't naturally one of those things that, that makes Unity go, I'm not a social media guy. I certainly don't do a lot of web development, which was a lot of the original skills. Uh, I kind of lurked uh, in waiting, just looking at some of the uh, the dialogue that was happening. And so by the time the steering committee was uh, trying to shape some of their decision space, uh, someone recommended uh, to me that I kind of volunteer to develop a red team, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about later. So this is kind of how we've ended up. So the red team hasn't been long in existence 
distance, but certainly long in need. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Cool. Yeah, I definitely want to get more into Red Team. I know uh, the podcast team has spent a lot of time speculating on what the Red Team could be. <laughs> You're quite a quite an, enig- an enigma for us. So we're Good. really happy to have you on. In fact, one of our goals <laughs> is transparency, so we're happy to do it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so before we get into that, though, I'd like to just kind of get more context about uh, your guys' uh, initial drive to be involved. Um, I know, Travis, you mentioned that uh, you had fallen into or become uh, impressed with Eric Weinstein's sense making. And Craig, you mentioned, uh, the I think you said something like the lack of uh, good public discourse or good communication was kind of an impetus for you. So is it really like is the driving force behind your involvement the lack of compromise basically in the in the political sphere right now is that kind of what really brought you in it's not necessarily the i mean that the lack of compromise is certainly a reason but it wasn't the lack of something that really got me in it was the the presence of the division and the reasons that we couldn't seem to overcome it all and like I said, I'd been, I'd been reading and, and paying attention for about a year before Unity to like be able to better diagnose what was going on. And, and I was just struggling for like an answer and trying to find it. And, you know, I, I certainly can't come up with the answer, but uh, Brett came up with an answer. And it was like, yeah, that seems like exactly the kind of thing among many that we all need to be doing to kind of recreate uh, unity, lowercase you, uh, in the country. Yeah, I think for me too, along with where you know Craig is is going in terms of the discovery of where could we find reasonable accommodation in our dialogue among citizens, because it wasn't apparent uh, initially that we all had a problem until you know 2016 sort of emerges. Social media is now at its zenith. And next thing I know, I'm watching all these people I've known for 20 plus years run to their corners. And I was like, I didn't even know you had a corner there. And so, uh, yeah, when we'd certainly been aware for a long time of the dynamic of the political base and primaries driving that, you know, the, to the edge, and then you would do the shuffle to the middle and grab the rest of the voters was the typical methodology. And that evaporated too. And so in the course of sort of discovering the Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, then, you know, move out to their larger community, as I hadn't been that interested in listening to a Joe Rogan or anybody else for that matter, or Sam Harris or, or Jordan Peterson, or take your pick across that. But then when I realized that they were diagnosing pretty effectively the expulsion of reason, and there was no way to accommodate uh, different points of view, because the dogma had basically stipulated that thou shalt not pick from this particular range of solutions, and we couldn't get to that superimposition of good ideas and reasonable ones, follow that later, and now we're watching the data that says most Americans don't want to be in that position either. And you go, well, I didn't realize I was actually in the majority. You know, so here we are, we're treated like this this minority, you know, adoption of this idea, but the reality is we're the majority of people. And so it was good to then finally evolve that understanding and realize that, yeah, we may have a chance at this thing because, you know, (laughs) there are a lot of us who are not particularly happy with being forced to the edge. Yeah, people want it. Um, Travis, I'm curious with your um, history and security, this is obviously something that Brett Weinstein has talked about a lot is just our place in the world and the desire of our enemies to see us fall. Um, so I'm just curious, what, how do you view the current situation in terms of our impact on the world and what this election is doing um, for the security of America on the world stage? I mean, that's a complicated question. If you go back to a lot of people who are national security observers and have been doing this for a while, um, they'll tell you that no nation has been impersistent in terms of wanting to influence the outcomes in another. So, you know, from the Cold War forward, which is kind of the best example of a worldwide polarization to superpowers, we were clearly doing a lot of those things for a very long time where we wanted to influence certain outcomes and, and vice versa. It just happens to be that it's 
much more comprehensive now and it's much more available to distribute down to populations. So where these were at one point in time, big national level dialogues. And maybe there was a small party who didn't realize they were being influenced. Uh, and yeah, they were participating in their national dialogue, but they didn't realize they may be a shill or a front or a shadow for some of the organization. Now it's just nakedly apparent. What's really interesting, though, from my perspective, is the numbers of Americans who refuse to acknowledge that they may be being manipulated. Uh, and so because the confirmation bias that exists out there that, hey, I kind of like this point of view. And so even Brett's talked about this a bit where the entry argument is one that, that no one really can test or doesn't seem to think is all that bad. And then it slowly navigates them to a conclusion that's more extreme. And if it gets caught or found in social media, that account gets scrubbed and then just begin the cycle over and over again. And so when I think about it from a national security perspective, it's not so much, you know, who our national adversaries are. What the thing I worry most about is how they were able to integrate into our regular conversation down to the neighborhood level. And most people refuse to even screen where they're getting their information from and they're letting that dialogue happen. That's the one that worries me the most. Overall, larger policy issues. Yeah, certainly I don't want to, to talk to those too much because there's, I mean, there's a lot in the space, but it's also kind of professionally what I do. But personally, that's what gravitates me down here to uh, the unity movement. I'll, I'll leave Craig to kind of make some comment too on that. Uh, yeah, what were we talking about? Just the, uh, the impact that this election and our current right. um, discourse is having on the world stage or, you know, in terms of security for the U.S. Yes. Okay. So I guess I failed to give my background outside of how I got to Unity. So I was actually also in the Marine Corps, but had never met Travis. Um, I retired in 2016 and immediately moved into um, government contracting as well, but on the uh, intelligence side of the house. Mm. Um, so I was with uh, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command from 2013 so 2016, I retired and then just shifted over one desk and was doing that until earlier this year. Um, and I will say that the division that is probably mostly self-inflicted is certainly not completely self-inflicted. Um, and it has caused the best opportunity for our near peer rival, which is China, to uh, ascend globally uh, to power and I mean we could have you know multiple whole episodes about um, the problems with China um, <laughs> as a geopolitical you know as, as the, the PRC not necessarily the people mm -hmm. but certainly that the inability of America to stick together to see anything through something like unfiltered lens um, to even rally around common cause that is external to the country has been severely limited by the division, particularly since uh, the 2016 presidential election. And uh, as much as we are doing it to ourselves, certainly there are other actors involved, as Travis was talking about. And, and like he alluded to, I mean, we, we try to influence elections too, so it's not like... Mm -hmm. Oh, you can't ever, you know, do that. It's not. It's not to be hypocritical. It's just that we need to be aware of who benefits when the United States is d divided against itself. And right now, it's China, and China happens to have one of the, if not the most advanced groups or mechanisms for kind of doing this kind of thing, which which is social media and kind of a new kind of information environment where they're able to operate, and they're putting a lot of effort into that. Uh, to pretty good success so far. And that's the way that they're going to counteract America's military and technological superiority. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting new way of kind of asymmetric warfare um, without it being open warfare. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's super critical for us to not, not fall apart from within because there are plenty of, whatever the flaws of the United States or certain segments of the United States might have, um, what rises if the United States falls in global dominance will not be better. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and I'll, I'll say this from Craig's perspective too, just because, you know, he happened to observe this from, you know, inside perspective as an intelligence professional, I've been doing it as a strategy professional. We're not talking about anything for those who would think that we're discussing conspiracy that is hidden. Uh, it just happens to be that we're observers inside this space. And so this is written about pretty regularly. And one of the things mm-hmm. about China is that they've told us specifically that they want to control the information space. And that's how they intend to manipulate this environment first. And if they can do it, through just the messages that they curate and then deliver uh, and find ways to pass to people that provide some kind of uh, deniability, but they don't realize they're being manipulated. Uh, Some would certainly say that that Russia's advocacy is a little bit more precise towards us in the West. In either case, uh, it just exists in the space. And so as they, we know that they manipulate the dialogues to the margins in order to create these extreme relationships. It's just an amplification of a problem we had and they're just exploiting it. Mm -hmm. And so the best thing to do to get your adversary is get him to do what he already was disposed to do. And that's happening in this particular space. And so if through our own efforts, average Americans can find a way to refute that by coming together in principle through, you know, the middle in a dialogue that allows, um, you know, not dogma to reign, but reason to reign, uh, then you find a way to beat that system. It neuters that challenge. That makes sense. It's interesting to me that we're spending all this time talking about China um, when Russia seems to be the focus of uh, attention in our country whenever we think about interference in our election or using information to mislead us. Do you guys see the mainstream media kind of being misled on this at all? Is this something that uh, deserves a switch in, in focus? So for my part, um, part of my um, bias towards talking about China over Russia is just an artifact of where I was. I, like I said, I've been in Hawaii looking at the Pacific Command for many years. So, I mean, Russia has their uh, east coast over there, but it's not, you know, it's, it's more of a European command issue. So there's that. Um, there's also an interesting thing, and that is uh, China is ascendant far more to far greater degree than Russia is. Russia kind of had its heyday during the Cold War, um, kind of collapsed after that, obviously, and then now it's kind of retaking some some global power. Um, but it's not the same way China is. China was a third world country 70 years ago, basically, if that and then they've created remarkable progress for their people. China is probably the single greatest example, other than maybe the entire African continent, of the most people being lifted out of absolute poverty in a very short time span. And so when when I think most Americans look at China, they see great progress, you know, technological advancement, um, stuff like that, which we like to see mm-hmm. other people achieve. The things that aren't seen are how exactly those are achieved like it wasn't with the way that america did it even though it kind of has some of the same features so they they certainly use economic advantages and they use global markets but it's not an internal free market in china so their people don't have access to the kind of market competition that we have here in america but we see that everything we're buying from is from china now so it seems like well that's must be what's happening they're innovating and producing and being successful it's like well yes but those aren't really trickling down to the people the way it does in the United States. Like you can't just be a random citizen somewhere in China and start a business and flourish in a, in a economy, a local economy, and then grow. Um, it's a little bit different over there. There's a lot of corporate espionage that China engages in as part of that same kind of asymmetric information battle space that they're very, very good at. And so from an outsider or from the average American, when you look at China, you see great things and they are doing great things for their people. What you tend not to see is what's not great about them, which either, I mean, the, the PRC is very good at controlling. There's a reason they don't have Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's things that will take more time to, to be seen. Um, I think COVID, as horrible as it is, was a little bit of a a good thing in this regard because it shined a light on some of the problems of China. It's like, well, yes, China is advancing rapidly, but they still have wet markets where, you know, you can just butcher a random animal and sling it up on a hook in the street. And there's a reason we don't allow that here in America or in most of, you know, advanced countries. 
again, maybe COVID didn't come from that, but it's still highlighting some of the problems with China. The secrecy of the regime also led to, you know, information not getting out early enough and things like this. There's, there's very good information that they have some minority, ethnic, religious, actual serious oppression going on in concentration camps and, uh, you know, harvesting body parts and selling of hair from, from that population. And it's like, okay, we need to look at, you know, China's doing a bunch of good things, but they're doing a whole bunch of bad things. And we're just not used to look at them that way. Whereas with Russia, to get to your question eventually, um, <laughs> no we're very used to looking at Russia as the bad guys. So it's like there's nothing new going on in Russia. There's just, just the same old Russia, more or less of the same Russia. And so I don't think, I don't know if I would place it on the media. Certainly that's one component of it. It's just kind of the tendency of the American people. Like we, we know how to look at Russia as a, a f- some kind of adversary. We never really had to look at China that way, not, not at least for 100 50 years or so but um so i think i think that gets kind of to your your question there. yeah for sure travis do you have anything to add with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I think that adding this one's like, you know, what's the media narrative around this? And so we certainly know that this podcast and amongst many others is the examination of the alternate media space where many of us would suppose that some of the larger mainstream outlets at one point in time, although they may have had somewhat more of a liberal or conservative bias, now there's much more uh, party and partisan alignment to that. And so the national security narratives that we're seeing in terms of how to interpret China, how to interpret Russia, who potentially is more compromised or less from their political leanings by those countries and their entities, and they're clearly adversarial, towards us in this regard uh, is really flavoring how people appreciate and understand this. And so as Craig is alluding to, there's a layer of depth and nuance that goes down there when we're talking about this. I mean, I, you know, I was, uh, I've been a lifelong Republican. Um, first time I ever voted for a Democrat was in 2016. Uh, but the whole point was, is I was the class of Republican, you know, sort of formally known as the national security Republicans, the ones that, you know, cared about the abroad and national security, and you could do what you want domestically and it really didn't matter. Uh, as those have flipped uh, to some degree, uh, and now the security arrangement is also our domestic challenge, and then how our media is sense-making and how they're aligning in a partisan way to interpret those challenges, that matters to me. Uh, from that perspective. And, you know, what we understand about our adversary uh, and clearly what their opportunities are, that's one thing that has to, unfortunately, make its way into the limelight of our popular dialogue, Mm. too. Hey, no kidding, average American citizen, there's an attempt to manipulate you. It's right there at your Facebook feed. It's right there in in your your Twitter, whatever the degree of curation is that, that comes from Twitter. And it's one more thing that you have to think about because party polarization is now infiltrated traded itself into the discussion about your national security risks and where that leaves you as a citizen to be protected, the first responsibility of your government. So I don't want to make too much of it, except that it exists now, and it kind of runs co-equally that you really can't divide your domestic from your foreign in terms of your political ideology now, because they're just kind of infused simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it began from, hey, who's being influenced by Russia in this first turn? And it just took off the last four years. Yeah, and I will say there's there's one thing I forgot to mention about China is that uh, they wield an extraordinary amount of economic power in the globe. Um, I don't think I don't think Russia can come close to it. And I think um, if anyone has been paying attention in the last two years, they've seen it. Um, the NBA will condemn the actions of Americans, but not say a single bad word about China. Um, I mean, Huawei phones were were some of the best, you know, four years ago when Google was using them to produce their first Pixel, and now they don't do that. And government 
you know, employees were told to stop using Huawei phones. You know, uh, we have senators saying, do not use TikTok because you're just handing your information to the Chinese government. Like these are not, these are not hyperbole. Like China is very technologically advanced in what they're doing. And um, by the time we find out most of what they're doing, it's already a problem. And so uh, I think people need to take more seriously um, when they're, you know, national security or elected officials who are privy to national security information say things like that, even if they tend to not agree with them ideologically. Um, everyone, like, there's no Republican or Democratic stance on, you know, stop giving China our information, whether it's personal information or secrets. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that should be bipartisan, I think, for the most part it is. So just because, you know, someone you don't normally agree with says it doesn't make it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, extremely interesting that a lot of the um, ways in which China might be taking advantage of Americans have to do with providing us things that we want. And so, you know, we're in this technological age where things are new all the time. We're always getting hit with new things that we need to figure out and learn about. And then you have to add this other layer of why, why is this thing here? Who made it? And it's kind of a hard thing for average Americans to parse out, I think, to, to try to understand new technologies while also trying to decipher the intent behind them. That seems like a lot. Yeah. And I, I, I'll get off my China horse here shortly because you know, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't the topic of the, the show. But uh, a good example that I tried to use, I was in a, a, a class. I'm working on my master's right now. I was in a, an ethics class a few months ago, and um, I, I started. This is probably when I started really beating the drum publicly on China. And and it's there's a lot that happens with China that if you just look at the second layer of it, doesn't make much sense. For example, China's the number one producer of steel on the planet, I believe. If not number one, they're they're like top two or three. Um, but they have almost no iron ore. Hmm. So how are they, and their, their steel is cheaper than say America's is. How is that possible if they don't have the raw material? And, and the answer, if you look one layer deep, is because, well, they don't have to pay for labor that we have to pay for. They don't have environmental regulations that, that we have. They don't have all the kinds of things that goes into the making of steel. Even if they have to buy the raw materials from third parties, those trade agreements probably aren't very good for the people who they're buying it from. So they get discounts all across the board that we can't compete with. So, Mm. yeah, that's a good example, I think. Do you have anything to add, Travis, or should we move on? No, I, I think that it, certainly the discussion about you know the, the mercantilist approach from from China and where they've also gone with debt diplomacy and, and a few other things are, are kind of key. But the question really gets back down to you know in terms of a unity perspective, does this matter from your political alignment and how you think about your own individual safety and security, let alone the nation's opportunities and prosperity and the nations that we have with us? And the fact is is that again. The polarization that we're seeing, you know, popularly is dictating people's approaches, and they may not be reasonable and balanced to the security challenge we're facing. And so, it just happens to be one other facet in the landscape of you know this political challenge that has brought the Unity 2020 ticket now Articles of Unity into being, and it's relevant from that perspective. And you know, Craig's talking about things that, that citizens are now forced to think about uh, and probably should. And the question is, can you present that dialogue in a way that, that allows Americans to find the representatives that help them navigate their best safety and best interests you know, and security? Okay, that would be a nice thing to have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of topping on that one, you know, where does it bring us to our particular movement? I think it's relevant in that case. Yeah. Well, let's bring it to the movement. I could easily spend this whole hour just going <laughs> down this wormhole. Um, I wasn't expecting to to go here, but it's been great. Um, so, how does this? How does your experience um, in the intelligence community and national security? Does this have uh, something to do with Red Team, or is there a strategy component that's being used? Please provide me some details. I'm in the dark here. No, so um, one of the this is kind of bring it to to a broader set of disciplines. So one of the things that that we begin to discover is is the amount of talent that sits inside of Unity, and so. Uh, 
I was really, you know, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was, uh, that I wasn't necessarily alone, particularly being a veteran, for example. And so Craig and I and a few others, and it's interesting, I think I've seen a, a larger population of former Marines than I've seen from other services here at Unity. It's, that's an interesting demographic it, itself. Uh, but that, you know, is really all you can count on two hands because we just ain't that big yet. Um, mm. But the other side of it, too, is, you know, when you look at it, the strategy perspective, uh, the, from planning and strategy, it's the, everybody must have a fundamentally common appreciation and understanding of the challenge that we're facing. And so unity kicked off a lot of high energy and a lot of gusto. And a lot of people thought they knew what they were talking about. But then as we began to progress more and more through the processes of unity from our initial inception to candidate selection, so on and so forth, we began to realize that there was a high likelihood that we hadn't defined our terms properly. And even though we're not trying to be an ideological movement, we have certain ideals and concepts that we're trying to explore. And so it came down to the, the fact for me initially, it's like, whoa, hold on a second here. Before we start going into solutions, you know, my training and discipline tells me that, you know, you we established some fundamental ideas. So what is it, the definition of patriotic? What is the definition of courageous? What is the definition of competent or capable that we use those as criteria to downselect someone that we think would be a suitable representative? Uh, and so in our initial you know, attempt to draft a candidate, I saw that there was a flaw to that. And so when I was looking across the slate of candidates, I thought it fundamentally um, worked for a confirmation bias where people knew some particularly popular politicians who may represent some of these opportunities, but really hadn't filtered them through those definitions. Mm. And so some of my early commentary was, hey, wait a minute, you know, before I go out there to do my candidate selection, I know that most everybody isn't about imposing an ideology, but you can't really escape the fact that we need to, to be understood and we need to know exactly what appreciation we've got so that everybody can kind of come to a common center or core. And it's pretty much a fundamental of information nowadays that if you want to bring people from diverse backgrounds together, they need to at least have this common perception. So I went back and started uh, being introduced to uh, some of the members of the steering committee and said, okay, look, uh, before we deploy a lot of these ideas that we're thinking about in terms of Unity's progress and where you want to go in, in terms of a firm decision about this, we need to see if we can't put some space and timing between what the steering committee and leadership is developing and what they're putting out there to the rest of the unity movement. And, you know, if we were honest with ourselves, we'd say, hey, look, you know, we've made some mistakes in terms of, you know, the deployment of those ideas. And then because we just generally get along together as unity as an organization, we were willing to forgive some of those mistakes. But, you know, immediately the ramification was in that as this moves past early adopters and those who are trying to mainstream, you know, the, the value of a unity program, the American public won't be that particularly forgiving. They'll think that we don't know what we're doing. And further, anybody who thinks professionally about these issues will immediately get kind of bent into the buffoonery or the, the margins very quickly because... Uh, what we do and how we do it does not look as professional and polished as people expect from an entity that claims that they would like to lead our country. So how do we find a way to intervene between some of those choices? And so that's naturally what a, what a red team exists to do. So, hey, as I mentioned earlier, kind of lurking on the margins, uh, you know, I don't, I, you know, not being uh, um, a technically professionally trained, but being trained in strategy, the thing I said to uh, some of the steering committee members is, hey, would it benefit you in the course of your deliberations about what to do for Articles of Unity to have some critical assessment on those ideas? And then before you spend them out, go back and have that assessment returned to you and see if you didn't succumb to a bias or a compromise or something else that in the end looks smart to us, but may not necessarily be A, structurally sound, or B, uh, wouldn't be representative of the quality of the movement uh, to other people outside as we're trying to grow and expand. And so that was the, the premise of Red Team. Interestingly, uh, and the backstory to this is, is that uh, one of the steering committee members had mentioned to me that, uh, that he'd originally had a Red Team 
on the organization chart that had kind of been dismissed earlier. And I said, well, I think we have enough you know, facts and evidence now that, that Unity hasn't always deployed as well as it would like to, that it's probably time to reintroduce the idea and do that. And so that's where you know, the Red Team Genesis is uh, in, in terms of its, its approach to Unity. So at this point in time, like, all right, you got the rose pin on you, tough guy. Uh, what do you want to do? I said, okay. So thankfully, the Slack channel exists and the Discord channel had existed, although I'm not on that as, as often as I was. So, all right, let's see if I can't find some members with some various talents uh, that would you know, enable this critical assessment and analysis process that, that's out there. And so, you know, going across um, the, the span of both what I'd seen in public comments and then people who'd been participating in Articles of Unity just within the Slack channel itself but hadn't really gotten involved because they didn't find a place, I'm looking through the profile pages. So, by the way, everybody, update your profiles because it's actually mm-hmm. helpful <laughs> mm-hmm. when it comes to finding the talent. And I went and looked for individuals with certain talents. So one of our members is a, no kidding, uh, uh, COVID researcher. Uh, but understands data. So no is actually working on a um, uh, COVID vaccine. One of ours is a professor of geodesign, so understands things from both a human-centered design process and spatial relationships and how to interpret it. We've got a business intelligence analyst who knows how to put things up on a screen that help people interpret reams of data in a very tangible way and kind of make some sense of it. We've got a uh, former professor uh, emeritus from Tufts who's a political science professor in American political systems. Mm-hmm. Hey, wouldn't that be handy to kind of know where we came from in terms of America's political evolution if we're thinking about doing something different? Craig, I went down to him, saw his skill set as a you know as a Marine Corps intelligence analyst, and said, "All right, this is a guy who knows how to think you know externally, you know how to look at ourselves, and probably has a series of tools on assessment that would make this very you know kind of quick to come together." Uh, and you know, so amongst that talent set, that's what's sitting in the red team right now. Um, and who knew it was, <laughs> it was all sitting inside of unity. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at right now in the assembly of the team. That's our origin story. Uh, not quite Marvel worthy, but that's <laughs> us. <laughs> so, you know, from getting that part, then, you know, certainly I'd, I'd, I'd leave it to Craig to say, Hey, and then when I approached him about it, you know, what was his first impression? Cause I think it was, it was like, are you, are you nuts, man? What did you do? <laughs> um, before you get into that, Craig, and I do want to give you time to get into that. I just want to echo something Travis said for anybody who's listening to this and has been sitting dormant in the Unity Slack channel that my experience coming into the podcast team was very similar. I was kind of lurking in the shadows, just watching everything go on since the summer. Um, and because I had in my profile video editor and podcast hosts, I was sought out and recruited to the podcast team. So I just want to stress what you said about filling out your profile and kind of using it as a way to be found. Um, but yeah, that's all I have to say. Craig, do you want to relay your experience uh, come, being recruited for this team? Yeah, so I had actually never, I never actually bothered to ask Travis the question how he found me. I assumed it was because in the Slack I had, uh, I had a series of things that I could do next to my name in my profile. And I think intelligence analyst was one of them. And that's probably how he, how he found me. Is that right, Travis? Yeah, okay. yeah it was right on there. It was like, well, I, I know what that means. <laughs> I, had a, I had a series of other things too, because I was trying to fit in wherever I could. I think I had writer and like philosopher or something, you know, ridiculous uh, there. But yeah, so, uh, so, you know, Travis sent me a, a direct message. He's like, hey, so I'm putting together this red team and um, I think you have skills that would, would help. And I was like, Mm, are you sure? Because, and he's like, here, go read this manual and this manual. And it, it, one of the good, one, probably the only thing that kept me, kept me on the team in the first week was, was the fact that he, he and I shared a Marine Corps background so we could address each other in a different way. Like it's not a normal recruiting process. He's like, here, go read field manual five dash one and this and that. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, Oh, I thought I wasn't doing this. I thought I retired for a reason. <laughs> And, and I went and read it and I was like, oh, okay, I get, now I get what it's saying. And I was like, okay, I went back to him. I was like, okay, I got, I think what you, I got what you're going for, but you know, how do I fit in? Because I'm used to doing like rigorous, you know, process-based analysis and, and things like that. And he's like, just trust me, you'll know when you fit in. And we had a couple of projects where I was just like, what the hell, man? I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing here. 
Like, this doesn't make any sense. You guys are, like, talking about feelings and things like this. And you're speculating on what other people are thinking. And I'm like, give me something hard to work with. And he's like, you'll see it. Just hang in there. And and it happened actually, like, last week for sure. Like, I had some input on some future, some previous things. But last week, I saw something. I went, there's me. And I, I took it on and I... I I got to settle right back into my comfort zone. And so now, yeah. And some of our, some of our team members have found this where they fit in really easily, a lot easier than I did. And some are still kind of waiting, looking for, and and maybe, you know, the thing about the great thing about having a varied skill set is that some of them are going to be needed sometimes and others are going to be other times. And um, hopefully we got, we've got places where people can fit in. So yeah, it, it was an interesting process being recruited uh, to say the least. It was not something I had ever encountered because like in the Marine Corps, obviously you just to go where you're told and do what you're told and you're going to learn what your job is and you don't have to figure it out um, beyond like figuring out how exactly you do what they're telling you to do, which is very little leeway. And then as a contractor, like I was just doing the same thing. So yeah, I've that's how that happened. Into- I mean, I've turned this into a professional discipline in a teasing about an orange, yeah, origin story, but you know, to make this relatable to everybody who ever grew up with comic books, you know, and and uh, saw how you know amongst the X Men series and the New Mutants, you know, and and they go to the training room and Professor X has got him out there and it's like, well, how do I put together a guy with telekinetic powers and throwing fire? So maybe that's what this, you know, that's what Red Teams kind of do for that talent. They have a couple different coalescing disciplines that they use to put everybody together, but everybody brings their, you know, piece of this stone soup and throws it in the pot and they're able to put those talents together. I mean, if, and if the question is, and just to kind of give a sense of this, you know, as a, as a discipline, this kind of has military origins because it got to the point, particularly in the last few years that as, and this is for most people who are concerned about, you know, the life of a forever war, um, you know, the, the conflicts we've been in for the last few years and mostly dealing with, uh, you know, easy military victories, very difficult one pieces or the peace for that matter. And one would say we probably haven't. Uh, and a lot of stumbling that's gone in there in terms of assessing those environments and transitioning to a stable environment. The red teaming disciplines that emerged basically said, look, all the ways that you think about conflict uh, need to be reconsidered. And so you need to start developing an internal discipline for critical assessment. And so they begin to develop these models. And eventually it sort of merged down to the business world too, as everybody was excitedly looking for the next best thing. Like, hey, how can I you know, deploy better decisions? And, uh, and in a world where now... Now, rapid prototyping and failing fast is kind of a thing, and you need to be able to assess those, you know, failures so that you can turn them very quickly. Uh, it's become kind of popular outside of its original military origins. All that to say, uh, you know, when you look at Unity and even Brett's comment that the American experiment is a prototype to some degree, and Unity as a model too uh, is you know, trying to change the political landscape, uh, you know, the question is, can we divorce ourselves from urgent and important? Do we have enough of a view that we're not spastically moving towards urgent and confusing that with important stuff where we can take a little bit of time, take a breath, think about ourselves for a moment and go, ah, all right, this makes more sense. And so a lot of the red team's focus is, is on that type of research. Now, we haven't done many projects for the steering committee, uh, bit by bit as we put them together. But, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to introduce as a discipline inside of Unity, much like NASA originally built some of its assessment processes for the safety of flight and they were considered gold standard. You know, I think we could probably do this inside of an organization that is beginning to prototype uh, a new way of thinking about the political landscape. And that's a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. So let me just kind of spit back what I've heard Red Team is, and you guys can tell me if I'm correct or if I need to adjust my uh, understanding. So basically you guys are a team of individuals who are examining the direction, the proposed direction and ideas of the unity movement and helping us decide if those ideas are worth pursuing and if the messaging is correct to grow the movement. Yeah, and I'll put a slightly finer point on it. So decisions on what to do and the strategies to be built, you know, become from the steering committee and whatever the strategy cell is in between there. 
red teams in between are designed to be agnostic on purpose. Mm. We really don't care which decision you make. I mean, we do because we're invested in, in, in the organization, but our job is to basically say, and in the process where you came to an idea about what you may want to do, without being contrarians and without being alternate reality builders, but looking at the facts and evidence as you built them and presented them, are they not all assembled properly? And is there some kind of critical flaw that if you don't realize it now, it will cost you a little bit later? So we don't create a, an alternate strategy and we don't create alternate decisions. And we certainly try to make sure that we're as neutral as possible by using some evidentiary tools in front of us. But to the degree that it also relies on a qualitative factor. So as Craig was talking about earlier, you know, some of us humans were more involved in the discourse and the dialogue portion. We're back and forth going, all right, hey, what does this mean? And we're, and we're drawing connections very quickly and we're making arguments. And I mean that in the best sense, you know, deductive arguments, inductive arguments, abductive arguments, reasoning to the best explanation, and then trying to convert it into some kind of accessible visual. That's what red teams would do more particularly. Yeah. And, and certainly as, as Craig, you know, uh, has expressed in his experience going, okay, I didn't know exactly what this meant. That's okay. Uh, you know, this is a lifetime's worth of disciplines coming together too. So, but that's specifically what its purpose is. It doesn't make decisions and it attempts not to influence them from agenda, remain as agnostic as possible and test the quality of what got an organization to its decision or its, or its strategy. Yeah. The way I like to think about it in kind of the, the elevator pitch style is that it's not our job to run unity or even to help run unity. It's our job to kind of sanity check the people who are running it. So, um, in any kind of bubble, and this you can extrapolate this out to many of the problems that we're talking about with unity as a whole and the country as a whole, when you get in any kind of bubble or any group of people that's talking to each other a lot, um, you can get kind of feedback loops, you can get kind of a, a closed mindset within the group, you can, you, there's, there's a bunch of different biases you can introduce. It, it's, it's somewhat analogous to the, the scientific method as well. Like, <clears throat> The point of the red team is essentially to try and both eliminate bias and provide perspectives that you might not have had. So that's what we're, we're working for. Excellent. I'm glad you guys are in existence. That's, that gives me uh, some more confidence in what we're doing. Um, not that I lacked it, but just nice to, nice to know you guys are there. So there was a really big decision recently then to withdraw from the 2020 election um, how do you guys view that decision and what does that mean for unity moving forward? Yeah, so that's one of our first projects was uh, assessing the, the withdrawal or the pivot move from unity 2020 to articles of unity. And so as the team went down and analyzed the decision-making process that went in there, we'd say, yeah, I think that it was a perfectly reasonable summary to get to. Now, institutionally inside of articles of unity, what would you have done differently to address that for the members. So I'll give a small critique that I don't think is inappropriate for the, the type of confidentiality that we maintain with the steering committee, but I'll, because I think it was you know, sort of popularly mentioned in the, in the Slack channel, is like, what was there in terms of the hurry up that this needed to be revealed right there in front of uh, a podcast, I think it was with Chloe Valdery, uh, that was sort of this, you know, jump into this, hey, oh, by the way, kind of aside, to the degree that eventually Brett had to backtrack, I think, in my estimate, to really rebuild the confidence within the movement, hold a separate Zoom discussion and go, okay, this is what we did. What are your questions? How did we get to this whole point in time? If there had been a more deliberate mapping to that decision, then we probably had a different reception. And it also would have given the organization time to go, all right, everybody who now feels lost from the Unity 2020 activity and is trying to figure out what they do in terms of becoming a larger political movement. And what is that movement, by the way? What form and shape does it take? And that's the other product that we're working on. Um, then, you know, we could have mapped a transition a little bit better. Um, you know, to what degree there's, there was urgency in this that it couldn't have taken some time to address it in a normal flow. So 
now the timing and sequencing between when the question was asked to us as a red team to address that and then you know when the announcement was made we didn't synchronize particularly well with the steering committee and so there was a you know pause for and after and we ended up doing more of a post-mortem on that than we did on a you know pre-decision consultation to help that out mm -hmm. okay to some degree it, it sort of proved our case which was Hey, everybody, we need to start taking pauses in some of these decisions. We need to start stress testing them and critically analyzing them. This is probably a good reason to do it. Um, and so that's an example that we've seen inside of, of Unity, inside that bubble and those feedback loops that, that Craig was talking about a little bit before. Um, so that was the first turn. Not to give away the game, you know, I'll, I'll let, you know, as you kind of explore this this particular thing, and then where's articles of Unity going next? I, you know, certainly I think that there's some things we can share about what the red team has been given as a project. Talk about that and things that we're discovering. Again, maintaining that confidentiality, we can't tell you exactly what we're going to recommend because that's someone else's decision. But there's some cool discoveries we've been making in in, in the process of analyzing what that may be. But Craig, did you want to pile onto that? Um, yeah, this is this is the project that kind of that got me. Um, got me, I guess, really engaged in, in one of my strengths is where we're taking a few different possible routes that Unity could go from an organizational perspective, not necessarily an idea perspective, but okay, how, how what's the best kind of structure for Unity to have moving forward? And it's, we have no preference for any of these structures we're looking at. And it's probably, we don't have the, the people and the time to be completely exhaustive list of all the possibles. But we took a few and we basically split up into separate teams and said, okay, you guys go, you know, learn about these structures and then come back and then we'll kind of, it's not quite this simple, but basically you, you compare and contrast them and kind of fight them against each other. And you say, okay, you know, these are, these are what it'll look like. These are the pros and cons. These are, these are the things you have to think about with each one. And then we, we kind of formalize that and give it, give it a good, let the other teams all look at it to make sure everyone's, you know, the left hand is talking to the right within the red team. And then we say, okay, these are our, these are the conclusions that are rather, these are the options that we came up with and the things you have to think about with each one of them mm. or all of them. And then here you go. And then, then it's up to the steering committee to take that information and use it to inform better decision-making. Yeah, I'll give you kind of a practical take on this too, because you know I, Craig summarized it really well, and then just to kind of you know add back to the well, what's the thinking behind that kind of the meta that goes into this process? In the world, people oftentimes will look at a decision and they go, "I think I recognize what this pattern is," and they'll immediately jump you know from conjecture to conclusion mm. in between, and the and that's true from. Uh, what would be kind of termed a kind learning environment, one where if you repeat it often enough and it has certain patterns and so on and so forth, you can you know, put this together very quickly. Recognition of decision-making. Why does a firefighter know that he can go into a building in a certain way, in a certain pattern, because he's rehearsed that environment over and over again and does certain things? In this particular landscape, though, this isn't, you know, this is interactive. It's complex. It's not, you know, structurally bound. It's got some unusual factors to it. A lot of humans interacting with this. And so, again, you know, we're trying to get into a situation where a lot of people at the end of Unity 2020 said, I think we ought to be doing this right away. Mm -hmm. And you saw it across the Slack channel. We ought to be a party. No, we ought to be this. No, you know, we ought to be a balloon animal. It doesn't really <laughs> matter. But the point being is, is that any one of those is may not be a fact-informed. In fact, it could be a fact-free decision based on what people think or conjecture and then move immediately to a conclusion. I think that the Articles of Unity uh, as, an, as a movement is too critical to the national conscience to sit around and just let it go, you know, based on conjecture, whatever anybody saw. And so if the, the term of a red team is to give some pause in that, good for us, you know, great. Now, that's kind of a smug position potentially, but I think that within a volunteer network, everybody can't do everything. Mm -hmm. And I want you all to know that, that we troll the, the Slack channel like it's cool. And I don't mean that from the, the, the negative perspective. I mean, we look where people are commenting and what they're thinking about and what they're deriving. And we get hints and clues about places to go research. So the comments from the group at large are not ignored in the deliberations of the red team. But even then, we're not taking those on specifically as conclusions. We're like, that's a good place to to think about it. That's a good hint. Let's go see if they're 
are facts that exist in the world at large that can help confirm or deny that particular conjecture. And so everybody, to some degree, is participating in the red team from that perspective. Hmm. Yeah, That's and a- just to just to echo that, there's um, th- it, it's probably not even recognized by the red team yet what effect the larger moon uh, unity movement is having on on the red team and there, and in many other ways as well on the decisions of the the steering committee. So like uh, I'm pretty active on the being a, a retired guy now. I'm pretty active on the um, the Facebook group. And there's some great discussion going on in there. And I get exposed to all kinds of stuff that I didn't know. And I get, I mean, there's, I've never seen a Facebook group that is good at making people question themselves as, as the Articles of Unity Facebook group. Mm. And so every time, whether it's someone I agree with or disagree with, that I see something that's like an intellectual trap or like a, a, a what's the word I'm looking for? These, um bad ways of arguing or discussing something i would just point it out be like hey you know i agree with what you're saying but look here you might be missing something over here or and and there's so much stuff that's come that that's made me better by looking at that stuff and there's so much stuff that i think it's just a really good group for for improving each other and i've certainly gained a lot of it that that i've applied directly to the specific problems that the steering committee has given us to look at from as an unbiased perspective as we can. So keep that up, keep doing it. Um, the, the writer's room and the Slack is a pretty good, pretty good way of uh, yeah. seeing what ideas are, we're generating internally, the social media group um, and the general, general chat are pretty good at bringing in things that I would not have otherwise encountered where, whether it be articles or videos or this or that. And so all that is immensely, immensely useful um, for us and for everyone uh, in the unity group. Yeah. So keep it up. Yeah, that's great. That uh, speaks to me quite deeply because this year uh, in particular, I have realized that a lot of the beliefs I hold are not built on sturdy ground. And so this year has been a really good opportunity for me to examine the beliefs I hold and understand, you know, is this based on fact or am I just believing what I believe because I've picked up some information along the way and I don't have a complete picture. So. Well, you know, it's interesting that, you know, for example, you look at the, um, the uh, Hidden Tribes report on the Articles of Unity manif- you know, manifesto, for lack of a better term, the announcement that we exist. And so we've had to go back and delve into that a little bit, too. And so from, you know, our, our resident social scientist, he goes, I, I think I see some flaws in, in how some of this data is interpreted from our resident business intelligence analyst as she's trying to put that out on the, on the page and go, OK, exactly how would you map and interpret this? No, the good news is, from that perspective, is we've gone through other sources uh, and and reports and examinations that some of the core findings of the hidden tribes have been reinforced. But the methodology of hidden tribes is you know may not be as sound as we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're going to anchor an entire organization on some of that data, uh, it needs to be stress tested a bit more. And interestingly enough, you know, one of the things that we keep finding is is that the constant need to define ourselves more clearly. You know, when we do the exchanges inside the red team and you think you've made a a really sound argument and someone goes, what does that really mean? And you go, hmm, yeah, let's go back. Now, guilty. I mean, this is our part of our exchange too. And and as we talked about our military background allows us to be a little more frank than, than most. Uh, Mm Because, you know, that's just the way it works. But by the same token, we're not trying to slow progress either and make it Mm -hmm. more abound. But it is inevitable that anybody from an outside perspective, I mean, there are whole institutes devoted to political thought that are also, you know, partisan in their nature. Um, You know, Cato is a libertarian institution and, you know, CSIS is a little bit more conservative and so on and so forth. And these are the people that other people listen to when they want to be taken seriously. And they're an inevitable constituency that we're going to have to cultivate outside of, you know, our early adopters here within, you know, the IDW and, and its expanding, you know, reason circle. And so, you know, the, the clarity that's going to be necessary to be considered credible and serious is an inevitable challenge. And if the seed is planted with internally within the red team, then we're like, okay, great, happily. Will we be conclusive? And I think Craig's point of the, you know, gotten to the point, there are reams of professionals who do this for a living for nothing but eight to 10 hours a day. And then they spend the rest of the time trying to figure out what everybody else is talking about too. 
Mm-hmm. So from a volunteer perspective, you know, the it, it's we're certainly trying to get to the next layer of consequence. So it's not superficial, uh, but by the same token, it's not as conclusive as it could be just given the time and availability of being a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I really this has been great. A great conversation for me. I've really enjoyed both you gentlemen um, is we're nearing the end of our time here. Is there anything you would like to add? Um, anything you might have to say to unity volunteers who are listening? I know that we've talked about having your profiles filled up, contributing ideas to the Slack channel. Is there anything you want to just uh, end with? Hey, Craig, do we want to talk about our latest projects a little bit and just kind of hint that, that things are good in that regard? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I'll give a, a tip to this one. So the, the steering committee has asked us, you know, hey, what form does an Articles of Unity in the future take? Uh, now, admittedly, there are things in the works to formalize Articles of Unity that are just, you know, requirements in, to be a part of the political dialogue in America. Uh, but we've been looking at, at different ideas like, Hey, is it a party? Is it a you know coalition? Is it a you know consortium of groups? Is it this? Is it that? Does it evolve from here? You know, in certain ways. And we've been looking at the way that people have been trying to influence uh, political dialogue in America. And, and I think that my favorite discovery up to this point in time is is if you look at advocacy groups that have existed, you know, common cause since the 1970s, all the way to Vote Pact right now, which has been popular discussions on on our various channels you begin to realize that most of the thing that they've tried to do is effectively draw from Republicans and Democrats and put them in the middle for some kind of discussion to get there. And one would sit there and go, well, how did we get to the state that we're in right now if those organizations have existed for 40 and almost 50 years? And is that an effective method for influencing the dialogue in our country that to avoid the extremes and bring it back more towards the middle? And so these are the kinds of questions that we're, we're looking at right now in terms of scope and scale. What's the most effective path uh, to make you know, an Articles of Unity concept viable uh, within the political landscape if our goal is we've got to affect something by 24 at a maximum and potentially and maybe closer you know, 22 in the midterms if that's a relatable thing or some other institutional reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and how's it working against this? So that's the question that we're tossing on right now. Um, and, you know, and it, it's been a fun one uh, to learn about things I didn't know. So, you know, that's my, my uh, preamble to that one. And I'm, I'm sure that, the, you know, Craig will put the epilogue on that for, <laughs> for this. You know, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty fun project that we're working on because, um, like I said, we split into teams and, and each team kind of uh, explored one of these options. And so you get to learn about, I've gotten to learn about, uh, what, a, what an actual consortium is way more than I ever thought I ever would. And it, it turns out there are, there are great things you can do as a consortium that you would, would know if you didn't look. And, and, and when you say something like, okay, what if we're, we're just collaborating with people? Well, well what does that actually mean? And what, what features does it have? And, and, other people from other the other team are, are telling me about this. I'm like, oh, that's that's kind of cool. Well, what if we what if we merged all these ideas? Can we be a consortium that's collaborating? And also, if we're a party, can we be a consortium? It's like, oh, well, these are all things that luckily I don't have to make a decision on. I just get to learn about them and kind of forward the ideas to the steering committee. But um, yeah, I mean. Aside from our current projects, there is something I, I kind of wanted to say. I've said a little bit about participating in the Slack, but as a, I will say also as a, um, just because I'm a red team member doesn't mean I have basically any more information than anyone else. So I do understand a lot of um, our volunteers kinds of frustration is probably a little bit strong, but um, I have felt a little bit like um, lacking in direction where like immediately after 2020 ended, I was one of those people who was guilty of like, okay, what's the next thing? What are we doing that Travis was talking about that, that probably needs to slow down a little bit and put some intellectual rigor behind things. So as a, as a local unity chapter organizer, um, which, which is not feeding into my personal professional strengths. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a social person. I'm, but you know, somebody has got to do it. So I would encourage people to get, find their local chapters, get into the chapter organizing uh, Slack channel and, you know, make it happen. We've already had one chapter who's, um, man, I forget. He's going to kill me for not, for not remembering where he is, but he's gotten together with 
um, his local libertarian party and had an actual physical campfire like the first week they, they existed. And I'm like, man, I'm way behind the power curve down here in Florida. So, I mean, get with your local groups and, and see what you can contribute. And if all you can do is provide, you know, a, a link here or there to something that might be interesting, that gets used. And trust me, there's, there's stuff coming. Not that I have, again, any insight, but the fact that the red team exists shows you that there's being there's things being thought about being thought about very well mm-hmm. and that, that we will get um some future guidance but in the meantime building we don't have to wait on the top down we can build the bottom up part of the movement and that's the way it should be that's what we were going for with unity 2020 was the groundswell so um we're clearly not in a position where we need to make that kind of massive you know millions of people groundswell right now but um we do need people to make um, small pockets and communities that can steadily grow and so that when we do get some direction or the next form of unity or the, whatever the next initiative that we try to go with um, we have people there with voices to lend um, when they're asked for and yeah get out there and, and help out awesome this has been great guys I really appreciate your time Craig and Travis um, we're going to end there for the day um, so, so for anyone listening, if you want more of Unity Now, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. For more conversations and content like this, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you prefer. Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. If you prefer to consume your podcast in video format, you'll find full episodes and clips on YouTube. Follow the Unity Now podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by clicking the links in the description below, and be sure to sign up and get involved at articlesofunity.org. Bye!